Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Gianni. And today we're joined by Matt Chernowski. Uh, Matt Chernowski is a, a developer who wants to help you build em- better embedded software, which we are all about, uh, specifically regarding unit testing and test-driven development. Uh, he has a background in developing software and firmware in the automotive, industrial, and medical device fields. Uh, and he has uh, seen how a test-first approach can help. Uh, and he's worked uh, in embedded systems as an individual contributor, tech lead, project manager, and director. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, we were talking a little bit before uh, recording, and uh, I, I think we want to focus on writing and testing firmware without the hardware. Uh, that's kind of the overall topic here. Yep. So, why don't you give us a give us kind of the the basics of why you might want to do that? Yeah. So, um, and uh, I just want to. Uh, give some credit uh, to James Grenning. Uh, his his book is kind of the the seminal kind of work on this, and uh, he's the uh, he's kind of the one that really pushed me in this direction. Um, where you um, you you really, if you're writing C and it's just C, you don't need um, to be testing on your hardware. Now there are certain things like down, you know, drivers that are uh, controlling different things, reading and writing registers um, uh, that. Um, uh, the hardware is useful for, but the bulk of your business logic, your application, uh, this you can write this in C, and you can um, you can uh, you can test it on your um, on your host PC, right? And so um, the idea is that like, and the kind of the reason this comes from from Grenning stuff is he's really about test driven development. And in order to do that, you need to like write a test, um, and then um, write the code to make it pass, uh, and then um, uh, and so this this fast feedback loop, and the um, in order to do that quickly, um, you need to be able to uh, to run those tests quickly. And when you do it, when you, when you have to like wait to flash the device, which could take I don't know thirty seconds to minutes, right? It just you can't you can't do that cycle fast enough um, to do the test driven development. Right. So I've heard I've heard that referred to as the the test driven development microcycle. So it's right. like write the right. test, watch it fail, write the code to make it pass, you know, ruthlessly refactor and just and iterate in that loop as quickly as possible. And and your point is, is like, don't introduce the latency of trying to flash your hardware to actually run those tests. You can run them nearly instantaneously on the host. Correct. Um, and I, I, I left out watch the test fail, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is a really fun one because that's the most bizarre one when you think a test that you just wrote is going to fail and it passes, and your mind is just like blown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I was just about to complain. Like, why on earth would I do that? Like, I, I, I add all of that effort of watching a test fail, and that makes it maybe helpful to to not have to flash onto the device. So shouldn't I just skip the whole watch the test fail phase and, and you know, and then it's not so painful anymore to to flash straight to the device, and I can remove all of this complication and at the same time have high fidelity in my test. So please make it make sense. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, there's a, there's a variety of benefits for testing on the host and not, not on your target, on your hardware. One of the things it forces you to do is it forces you to think about, um, you know, what are the hardware dependencies and, um, and um, identify those things as you're implementing. And if you if you feel like you need some hardware specific thing, um, then that probably needs to go in some sort of a, like hardware abstraction layer. 
um, so that you're you don't have this whole mess of all your application code directly like reading and writing registers because um, that is just like a, a recipe for uh, for just spaghetti code um, but in terms of like I mean I think there there definitely is value in like you know writing a bit of code and flashing it and seeing how it works and you know if you're developing like a, you know an ITC driver or something like that that makes total sense. Um, but those are just like components that are very close around the edges of your um, of your system, right? They're just very close to the hardware, and they don't actually need a ton of logic. Um, they just um, uh, need whatever is necessary to to interface with the peripheral, or whatever. Right. So if you're so if you're writing an application, say for like a, a an STM ST microelectronics part, or a you know a Texas Instruments Tiva C part and you see calls to those like PativaWare libraries in your main loop, you know you're doing something wrong. Um, that, that should be pushed way, way down into a layer that's easy to, to abstract away when you're running on, when you instead want to run on the host. Correct. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to kind of, uh, kind of just talk about what we're talking about because embedded systems are like so diverse. Uh, Please. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess because um, I, I, do a bunch of work on like embedded Linux systems too, but like this is not this is not really that. This is you know microcontrollers, and even in the microcontroller realm, there's a wide variety of things. Um, uh, but like pretty much the um, the ARM Cortex, you know, M's, uh, the TivaWare or like you know uh, the, the STM32 parts, like those things are everywhere. Uh, the compiler is like a pretty good like open source GCC compiler. Uh, that, that you know, that's anyone can get and use. Um, they kind of like made it so that there aren't as many of these hardware specific things. Although certainly, like there's there are the libraries and things, but um, uh, but it's not like a pick or something where there are different like instructions or or something like you know that um, that is like a non-standard uh, C um, you know syntax or something, and. Um, I, right. I'm not even sure. Like, I, I just I'm picking on pick just because they're usually the worst about things. But uh, I haven't used one in a while. But it's just as an example of um, where it gets harder. Yeah, and and it's a good point, I guess. As the as technology moves forward, we do like few people are dealing with the really really non like four bit and eight bit systems that are extremely. Right, resource constrained, I think, <laughs> or yeah. you know, don't have very resource constrained, um, uh, like maybe a lot of uh, hardware and compiler specific things that you have to deal with. So more and more people are. I, I almost deal exclusively at the thirty-two bit ARM, you know, Cortex M level yeah. in my work, and I've like a lot of different projects, and they're all using that yes. family of of controller microcontrollers, um, and I feel like you know everyone I've seen is pretty much operating at that level, so. Uh, I think most of our audience is and and can appreciate that. I think that. you've got to get yeah. into like some really really high quantities, right? For the for the costs to make a difference right. to, to where you're going down to that that resource constrainment of of, of microcontroller uh, where it makes a difference. Cool. What are some other uh, benefits of of making these run on the host rather than just on the on the hardware? Um, so like you know, uh, if it's new hardware, maybe it's not ready yet, right? So. Um, or there isn't enough of it, or a lot of it. Um, yeah, uh, that's always a kind of a bottleneck for. Um, if you can start writing the core of your business logic before you have boards in house, like that's a pretty good like schedule uh, 
parallelization uh, strategy, right? Absolutely. And then, uh, I mean, you know, and you can like, you know, work out hardware driver details, you know, later, but um, you can, you can kind of think about those interfaces as you're developing the application. Um, and, and actually the other thing too, is that kind of a trap that I see people fall into sometimes is like, you know, we're going to make, we're going to start with drivers. Uh, and well, what does the driver need to do? And it's like, well, I don't know. We'll just make it do everything. Um, mm. But like, that's like, that could, that's like a recipe for like wasting a lot of time. <laughs> um, especially as some of the stuff I've done with um, kind of in like contract development, right. Where um, uh, for, 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 for you as the contractor and uh, for the, the client who's, uh, you know, has a budget, you want to like maximize the amount of work not done. Right. So like if you can develop the application and, and kind of identify, Oh, we only need, you know, this, whatever driver is, I don't know, the spy driver to do this thing or, or the I2C driver to do this thing. Um, then, uh, you can like really limit, uh, you, you can, you can kind of constrain, you know, what, how much code you have to write. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's very tempting to, to, you want to make things reusable and modular. And so you want like any reusable components, like a, like an I squared C driver, you want it to be capable yes. of handling all situations, but that's a, that can be a rabbit hole. Especially as as you write things level above that, and it starts to proliferate along lots of different parts, and yeah, it's uh, much better to stick to the the Yagni. You ain't gonna need it. Yes, philosophy. exactly. Right. So, right. No, I think I, I yes, I, I really like the Yagni, <laughs> and I used to use that a lot um, uh, when we were really really crunching the budget and the schedule, we're trying to trying to get them squeezed in. Yeah, just kind of, I mean, and then, you know, and if you have like reusable drivers, that's great. Maybe you just um, like expand them and, and have them grow like as you, as you, you know, as you reuse them or something. Maybe you don't plan for everything because you, yeah, exactly. You're not, you're not going to need it. Cool. Uh, let's see. Any other, any other benefits uh, for doing host-based development as it were? Yeah. One of the things it's, uh, it's, it's a lot easier to do like CI. So you know, if you've got your code in GitHub, um, you can just, um, you know, you don't need, if you don't, if you don't need hardware to run your tests, you can just like, you know, fire up the GitHub action and run your tests there. Um, and you can do that on every commit or pull request or whatever. Uh, and you don't need to like um, try to set up some sort of hardware system where you can flash the code and run the tests it's just a, it's a lot faster to, to get, to get something that's always running, you know, all the time uh, when you're, you know, trying to merge all this stuff from different developers, just um, making sure uh, catching things that break faster. Let me right. point out though, as you're saying this, that I feel there is a lot of value in automating your, your deployment pipeline all the way to, to bare metal. So I, I guess the caveat is don't take that as an invitation to skip that step. You should totally do it. But regardless of that, I think um, I completely agree with you that there is a lot of value in removing the dependency on hardware so it can be nice and fast and, and you know, have, have all kinds of other benefits. Yeah, and I to totally agree. I mean, I think, um, and this is kind of um, when I'm, uh, that's kind of like step 100 uh, and like, uh, that is great, but like, like the, the host-based 
uh, continuous integration is like low-hanging fruit um, that um, is really where you should be going first. Um, and because uh, um, just in order to get, I think there's a lot of value in getting started quickly, like if you haven't done this uh, before. Um, so I think it's, um, it's important to make it easier on yourself when you're starting. Uh, but yeah, um, especially if you have like, you know, these, if you're doing maintenance of, of, uh, of products over years and years, um, it makes um, a lot of sense to invest in that sort of deployment pipeline. I guess in my personal experience, um, I, where I usually work with, with clients is kind of earlier on in the, this thing is new. Um, and they're not usually as interested in that. Um, and so it, the host-based tests and CI are kind of a, kind of a balance of, well, what can we do in the short term that isn't going to like, you know, cost them a lot of money. Uh, and then maybe they can, they can add those things later down the, down the line as they're doing maintenance where, um, uh, over longer periods of time, but look at kind of the return on their investment. Right. And we've talked in the past about like, we had a recent episode about hardware in the loop simulation and, and that, you know, you can kind of dip your toe in that, but it often requires a significant investment just to get that up and running. Uh, and sometimes it's not worth it. Uh, Luke and I, <laughs> we've gone back and forth over this. Luke is always like, no, it is worth it. Automate all the things. And I'm like, well, you know, sometimes it's not worth it. So it's, uh, but but your your point is well taken that that just getting um, host based tests up and running like that's a minimal investment with a almost guaranteed massive return, and then once you have that, then you can do the automated hardware stuff after that. Uh -oh, here, we here we go, so Luca, bring it I, on. I need to interject here because you you know you have this unspoken assumption that those are new products. But I've worked on on you know old products that you know the code base was literally decades old. You know the version control system they used was SCSS, if that tells you anything. And in those cases, <laughs> Matt is shaking his head. Uh, <laughs> and in those cases, I think it's actually much harder to get started with testing on the host, just because the entire code base does not at all lend itself to that. It, it's really totally, you know and meshed with with the target system. And so in those cases, it's actually easiest to get started with, you know, testing on the target. But completely agreed for a Greenfield product, project, you know, by all means, get started with testing on the host and then maybe try to dare and dip your toe into testing on the target or, or, at, least, or at least automatic deployment. We're not even talking about testing on the target yet. So, so Matt, maybe speak to that. So you, you had mentioned that you have experience talking to uh, you know, by people who bought your book and 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 other folks who want to get into this, want to start doing test-driven development. And what are some of the roadblocks that they run into? And I think it, it speaks to what Luca just pointed out. Yeah, um, yes. There are many massive legacy projects that were not architected uh, to write tests against. <laughs> um, and um, uh Yes, uh, getting those that getting that code to run on the host is um, is is hard work, uh, and yeah, that's obviously that's what you need to run when tests on the host. Um, but um, um, I think, um, and this is another kind of like um, point taken in, in Granning's book is about um, uh, you know just trying to take a little bit of your code, not all of it, but just a little bit, and like 
kind of draw some seams around it and uh, add some mocks and some fakes and try and get that one piece to compile on your on your host. Um, now he would say that's important because you you want to do test driven development where you're doing these these rapid cycles, so you want that code running on the host. Um, uh, I I I mean I. I think it's a good strategy for adding unit tests in general, uh, because adding unit tests on the target is a whole nother like um, amount of things to set up that is you know going to be like a custom thing to set up, right? Um, and that's why, like, uh, so you, you mentioned my book. The book is just like a um, kind of a manual for how to use Seedling, which is just a tool that puts together Unity and um, CMOC into like one build system uh, for like kind of automatically generating tests for individual uh, C files um, on the host. And so like, um, I think that is like, because that you don't have to like build that from scratch that is already out there and you can use that. I think that is a really good place for people to get started. But yes, you have this, this problem of like, well, I have this massive legacy thing and how do I write a test for like one module when that module Calls into a lot of other different places, uh, you know, into the hardware and the just dependencies are are uh, are pretty crazy. But so I think so. What um, so for in my experience, I think the best thing to do because if you start with that as your goal to like get that thing under test, uh, my concern is that you will kind of give up uh, and not and you before you see the benefit of it. Um, that's why I try to encourage people to try uh, TDD first on just some like uh, just. A random project, <laughs> just like make something up, just some sample project, um, and uh, just try that that test driven loop. Um, you know, writing code for whatever function functionality you can imagine, and not starting with your um, with your legacy code base, because that allows you to like see like, oh, this is like the mindset I'm in, and this is and this is actually a benefit because I'm I'm. I can think about writing the code in this way, and it's like it's more of like a process right. uh, than um, uh, where legacy code refactoring and writing testing ads is also a process, but it's a very different process. So, so it's so I would I would agree with you and and say that test driven development and writing code that is testable is a skill that takes practice, and if you and and I would say then taking a massive legacy application and trying to get components of it under test and teasing apart those dependencies so that you like new code that you write for it to be testable, that is a separate, much more difficult skill. And if you try to learn those two things at the same time, you're almost guaranteed to get extremely frustrated and give up and then start ranting about how TDD doesn't work and, <laughs> and that Matt and Jeff and Luca need to, you know, shut up. <laughs> so, Seems like a reasonable outcome in the situation. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, um, yeah. And actually, I think um, the uh, the other uh, uh, I think uh, Michael Feathers has his book on like um, working with legacy code or something, working effectively with legacy code. That's like the also like the, the legacy code. Uh, uh, is it over there? <laughs> I was looking on my bookshelf. I, I I feel like I have it, but I don't see it off the top of my head. Okay. But yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, they're totally different strategies, um, uh, and so yeah, I mean, it, and I, I would also just kind of add to your point that when you're doing TDD, um, it, you, 
it, you're learning how to write testable code, but like you have to write testable code when you're doing TDD because you're writing the test first. So you're like, oh, well, this is, you have to think about, well, what is the test I'm going to write first? And then that's your window into, oh, um, that's what the interface is going to look like. Or, oh, I only need this bit right now. Or, um, or how do I, what is the next way to add functionality um, in an incremental step? So how did you uh, how did you first hear about this and get into this? I mean, I guess, so we we keep talking about Grinning's book. The book is yeah. Test Driven Development for Embedded C. I don't think we've ever actually said yeah. the title yet, uh, okay. and I think we mentioned it in the podcast previously. But but tell me how you like you know the early stages of your career when you first got started, and then how you yeah. saw the light and started developing in this new way. Yeah. So um, uh, when I first started out, I was working at this kind of uh, like an, you know, a product company, right. That just happened to have things that had microcontrollers in them. So they, they had firmware people and, um, maybe, uh, you know, just kind of organically the, the code just kind of like grew out of like, you know, there was some, somebody that was there that knew how to write some C code, but like, wasn't necessarily, um, you know, a software engineer or like a software architect. And so, um, you know, kind of start with this, this base that's, maybe not architect well. And then over years, it goes through a lot of maintenance and then you've added all these features. And at a certain point, like nobody knows anymore, like what it is actually supposed to do. Like you're afraid to touch it because um, you're afraid if like, oh, I'm going to, I got to add this new feature, but like, could I break something else? Like I, you know, you don't know. Um, and so we had like a pretty large manual testing department, but it was like not suitable <laughs> to, to test all those features. Um, and so, um, uh, later on in my career, I, um, started working in a more, um, uh, kind of like vertically integrated, uh, software team where we would do, um, it wasn't just the embedded team. Like we had some embedded, uh, people, uh, writing C and stuff, but we also had some, some like, uh, you know, desktop application developers. And so actually that was the way I got introduced to, um, unit testing, uh, was by, I was writing some C sharp or something. And, um, there was like some code that had to, um, uh, I don't know, I think it accessed some database or something, but like, I didn't, it was, it seemed very scary, but there were all these tests. And so I could just run those tests and I knew like, I couldn't break, I, I would know if I broke any in the functionality, if any of those tests broke. And so that's when I was like, huh, this is really great. <laughs> Why aren't we doing this, um, you know, in our firmware? Um, and so that's when I kind of discovered the Grenning book and started experimenting with things. And um, it was hard <laughs> at first, um, but then it got better. And um, now it's like, um, like uh, it's just kind of the way that I would just do things now, uh, you know, kind of by default. And, and, you know, sometimes you're making experiments and it's not, um, uh, you don't want to have to, 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 um, to test everything, but um, like I'm not a zealot. Like I know there are people that are like really crazy. You might only can only do TDD. Yeah, I just kind of found it as a use, useful as a strategy for for writing code. Um, and I really like the way with like TDD specifically um, that um, sometimes when you're writing some code, you can have this kind of um, thought. You can have like you can be it can be nonlinear, right? There can be a lot of you can be thinking about a lot of things the code's going to do, but like TDD takes it to what is the next thing that it's going to do? Uh, like takes away all that stuff. It's just like, I'm going to write one, one more test and I'm going to add one more little bit of functionality. 
And so it takes this kind of like nonlinear thing and turns it into like a linear, like micro steps, as you mentioned uh, before, um, which helps me, especially as I get older. I can't hold as many things. Yeah, that's one of the things I really like about TDD. It, it sort of gives a, gives a rhyme and rhythm to, to your development. Which is probably also what makes it a bit confusing in the beginning because you absolutely, you know, you see these things happen, but they don't make sense yet. Yes, and there are other challenges too, like you know, if you're testing against some particular module and then you like want to refactor something, and then it's like the interface changes. Like, uh, well, do I throw away those tests? And I, I don't know. It, people can start to like freak out, like, oh, my code, I'm going to throw it away. I think it's not terrible <laughs> to throw away code uh, sometimes. Um, but um, um, yeah, I mean, I just, um, and then as you're going, you're just developing this kind of record of, of the requirements uh, as you go. So um, yeah, and actually, uh, I've, been, I've been writing a lot of Python recently just because I've been like kind of working on some like C code tooling. Um, and uh, I don't know Python that well. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I know it enough, right? But um, one of the things when you're working in a language that you don't know that well, like uh, TDD is great <laughs> because uh, you can start really, really, really small. Um, and uh, you know as soon as you make an error. Um, and uh, yeah, it just helps you kind of like learn the language and discover things that you don't know as you go along. Well put. Um, talk about your, so, so you mentioned, uh, uh, prior to us recording that you were, you've done work in medical devices and, and kind of leveraging unit, all the, the suite of unit tests that you have running to kind of handle, um, you know, uh, the unit verification stage, which is part of kind of the standard set of design controls that you have to do. And this is, uh, you know, this is the industry that I work in. So I, I'm a big fan of that. So speak to that just a little bit, if you could. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think the kind of the context there too is like sometimes uh, clients don't really want you to spend time on tests because they don't necessarily see the value. But um, when the government <laughs> makes you, uh, you know, submit documentation with your, uh, with your product, with your software that, you know, kind of attempts to prove that it works correctly, um, uh, then I guess they, they're a lot more interested. Um, and so, yeah. So in the past, um, uh, we've actually used uh, like automated test reports, unit test reports, um, to do um, to kind of automate the um, the unit verification step of uh, you know of our of our documentation. So uh, we'd run our tests. We'd like um, we'd actually kind of look at the coverage uh, reports too, uh, just to kind of get like a um, like a like we break things up by like by units, right? By <clears throat> modules, and um, we'd. Um, run our unit test against them. And then we look at the coverage reports for each unit. And so we can say like, hey, I have like a really de high degree of confidence uh, that like this thing is, is gonna work because of these reasons, here are the tests. Um, and then, you know, even to supplement that, we would do code reviews as well, um, which is kind of the more manual way to do it. But it's not really, I mean, code reviews are, are great and important, um, but they're also like not great to redo when things change. Um, it's also not great to like batch them up and do like tons of them at once, like at the end of the project or something. Um, so <clears throat> uh, the automated tests are great. Like they really take the baseline uh, of like the work that you need to do for unit verification. Um, you know, it's like a, it's a big bulk that's automated and then you can kind of do your manual stuff uh, after the fact. Nice. Uh, Luca, any other things you want to cover? Yeah. I, I just really feel a need to rant about uh, clients <laughs> uh -oh. about clients telling you not to write tests like this is this is how 
this is how to do your craft. This is how you write a product. This is how you guarantee that it's got good quality. This is like somebody telling you not to use, um, I don't know, VS Code or whatever it is and, and go use Notepad instead. I'm not paying you to use a fancy ID. Go away. This is how I work. I'm an expert at this. So I, I, I you know, I've, I've seen this before, but I totally object to customers trying to tell you not to write tests. Yeah. What? That's just stupid. And I think, yeah, no, and I think, um, you know, uh, I made a kind of a broad generalization there. Um, but um, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it really does depend on the client. Uh, and also it depends on your organization, right? Like uh, either you as an individual or like the organization you work for, um, you know, that might be your stance. Uh, like I, you know, uh, I've worked at a bunch of different places over the years and, um you know, I would say uh, at each place we've been more going the way of this is how we do things, and um, you know we're not going to not do this. Um, so, um, yeah, I I totally agree. It's it really is just part of the process. Um, and it should be just part of the process. Um, and, and you know, there's there's degrees of it, right? You don't have to go crazy. We don't need 100% coverage everywhere all the time, um, but. Um, there's a balance to be struck. Exactly. So, like, I've I've worked on ACLD projects, so SIL four, safety integrity level four, oh. um, and even those assessors said, you know, don't don't even bother going near a hundred percent code coverage, test coverage. Yeah. There's no there's no value in that. We'll certainly verify all of the things you do, but we you know we're perfectly happy with like eighty percent coverage, and we'll just do the rest by inspection or or other means. So. Yeah. I um, I am absolutely in favor of testing, but I'm perfectly happy with like 5% code coverage if you're covering the right 5%. Right. Like if you have a bunch of, of static code that's just sitting there and that's been going for 10 years, there's no point in testing it. You already know it works. You're not increasing trust in your system by covering something in tests that you already know works well. But, you know, the stuff where uncertainty happens, where change happens, that's what you need to cover in tests. And, and in those places, I'm adamant, you must test them properly. Yeah. And I would add, too, like just like the high complexity areas, uh, like the, the, it makes more sense to give more of your attention there. So high complexity and then also um Areas that are changing a lot, which I think is kind of what you mentioned there. Exactly. Um, all, so, yeah. all, of the, all of the areas where there is high risk. And and then yeah. once you get into that habit, so I, I, I struggle to understand people who resist testing the right things. I mean, I'm 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 perfectly in favor of resisting the urge to test all the things because that doesn't make sense. But it's like you know, I've I've read that in some places in the U.S. you can ride your motorbike without a shirt and without a helmet, and while you could do that, um, and I suppose you can impress girls with that. You can't really impress girls by not writing tests for your code, so why don't you just do it? Uh, well, maybe you impress the uh, the project manager or the client because you you were done faster. I'm making air quotes, uh, <laughs> but whatever done means, right? I, uh, I think you will. We, we, I, I think you will leave quite impressive mountains of technical debt behind you. That that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I was hinting at there. Uh, right. You might be. You might give the appearance of progress, uh, but uh, uh, under the hood, uh, there's probably some some uh, some 
some things to worry about there. Nice. Uh, Matt, this has been fantastic. Is there, uh, so why don't you give a little plug for, uh, for your book, which is again, how I first found you. Uh, so it's, yep. it's, I'm really happy to have you on the show and finally be able to talk. Yeah, thanks about for having this. me. Uh, yeah. So it's, um, uh, it's called a field manual for seedling. Um, and like, so these guys, uh, built this tool seedling, um, and it's, um, uh, it's a really great, like unit test tool for, for embedded C, um, and, uh, makes it really easy to, uh, write unit tests against modules and uh, create mocks and isolate your tests and just you know when you're starting from 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 the greenfield I guess uh, but also you can you know uh, you can introduce it into an, an existing project so uh, so the book is just like a really detailed like uh, blow by blow explanation of how to like test all kinds of different things uh, like um, uh, you know like you've got you know You've got a, you're passing in a pointer or something. You need to test that value. Or you got to mock this particular thing. It's just how to how to do almost all the things that you you would need to do to, to use C-Link to write unit tests, which is Unity and CMock. So, why didn't you write this book like 10, 15 years ago when I needed to learn all of these things? Sorry, <laughs> I was I was still in the dark ages myself. <laughs> Shame on you, sir. And and actually, I I mean I still use it as a reference for myself because it's like hard to remember all that stuff. So. Um, yeah, I find it, uh, again, with the trying to remember a lot of things in my brain, it doesn't work as well as it used to. So um, uh, I can just put that information in a book and then I can refer to it later. So, And, and I can definitely test, attest to its value. Like Seedling is a, is a fantastic tool. Like any other tool, it has a learning curve and there's a risk that you're like, oh, I want to get started with this. And you start bumping up against that learning curve and you get frustrated and you fall off and having... Um, a, a, a step-by-step guided tour of it, like, uh, like in Matt's book, uh, is very, very useful to pushing through that initial pain and getting to that place where you get those hits of dopamine. And you're like, okay, all right, I see the value. Now I'm going to really start using this. Um, and and uh, Matt's book is a great way to not fall off that learning curve and to Thanks. to push right. through. Uh, and we'll definitely, we will put, we'll put a link to that uh, in our show notes. Um, and how can people, uh, uh, get in touch with you if they want to either learn more about your book or, um, or ask you questions about what we've talked about today? Uh, yeah. So <clears throat> you can, uh, get me, uh, reach me at my website. Uh, so my website's, uh, is, uh, electronvector.com. Uh, and you can email me at matt at electronvector.com. And, uh, I post like occasional blogs, articles on the website, um, kind of, you know, hit or miss here and there, but, um, uh, uh, that's where you can find information about the book and just kind of whatever kind of random things I'm thinking about, about embedded firmware. Um, and uh, yeah, so email me or go to the website. I've also got a, um, uh, like kind of a free guide that you can sign up for. There's like a, a mailing list you can sign up for um, if you want to do that too. It's free. What's, what's the free guide if you could? It's just kind of like, um, <clears throat> it's uh, one of my most popular articles is like kind of how to take seedling and deploy it into your project. Um, and so um uh, and start using it. And so it's kind of, um, it's a, it's a PDF version of that along with like some other information kind of all in one PDF. Um, and so, uh, just if you want to use it as a reference rather than go to the website. That sounds really helpful. Perfect. Well, Matt, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great conversation and I, I think our, our listeners, uh, uh, will have gotten a lot out of it. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being here. 
All right. So this has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luke and Jenny. And we will see you next time. Thanks.